Coast to Coast AM. Hello there, Connie Willis. Are you all adjusted to the clock? You good now? It, did it take you, you know, has this been enough time yet? I, I know most of y'all know. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. It will happen. And just in time to change the clocks again. That's just, yeah. I, I it was a whole, it was a whole transportation thing. It was the Department of Transportation, if I remember properly, that, that, that is why. So, we can go deep. I should have. I should have done a show on that. I should have. I did years ago, so that's why I feel like I've kind of been there, done that. But I don't remember enough to tell you. So I'm Connie Willis. You can find me at ConnieWillis.com. I hope you will. I've got a couple membership shows and a community, and uh, we're family. We're absolutely family. It's just the way it is. It's the way it is. And I, if you'd like to uh, be a part of a family that loves to talk about these types of things and also has a sense of humor and and we're not we don't take offense to everything or anything you'll have a good time <laughs> then um, become a, a blue rocker join me on blue rock talk or any of my other shows and uh, you can always tune into the podcast which is free that's connie willis the podcast and got more of those coming so hang in there i'm you know i'm learning how to do it and what to do best and you guys have been supporting me a thousand percent i appreciate that and, uh, you know, just even if you just sign up for the newsletter, I'd like that, uh, ConnieWillis.com. So Charles Ostman is who we're talking with. I know you guys, we got people on the phone lines ready to talk to you. But, Charles, before we get into uh, phone calls, I want to ask you a few more things. I mean, you have authored and given numerous presentations, technical, general interest public publications, featured on interviews on TV, Coast Coast AM and all sorts of other things. And uh, people can find you at historianofthefuturex.com, right? Historianofthefuturex.com. And I get, you know, well, first of all, what are the things that you want to talk about before I get into all of the other questions that I'd like to ask myself? But I just want to know what you want to get out in the public. Are you with us? Did we lose you? There should be um, historian there of the oh, well, there we are. It should be historian of the future X and also historian of the future. There's there's two URLs, but they both go to the same place. The reason it was oh, okay. X was for was for extreme because I had an extreme version, which I'll uh-huh. repost it later. But right now, that's it all works the same way. Okay. So, okay. So maybe this might be helpful because I know that's hard and hard to piece all these bits together. But there's a lot of moving parts that all fit together like in a giant mechanism, as opposed to any one singular science being the thing that's going to suddenly push us to this new sort of transhuman slash singularity arena. And one way of looking at this is if you look at artificial intelligence, which has become like a big thing all of a sudden, although this development stream has been going on for some time, but it has rapidly accelerated in recent times. Part of what makes this possible is the development of ever larger, more uh, robust neural networks. Neural networks are the computer computational equivalent of the neural system that you have in your <coughs> that you have in your brains. That we are now to this point where we can scale to a size of neural networks that begins to approach or mimic what happens in biology. Now, the reason that's possible is because nanotechnology, as a manufacturing process, allows, uh, as an example, to create ever um, more complex devices or devices with smaller features that can be packed into a given amount of space that can also compute in different ways than what's normally traditional uh, digital computing. 
if you put both those things together, and now imagine this for a moment. We're in a cloud-based network. We're in this sort of ubiquitous computing grid as we speak. Virtually everything's on the cloud now. When you talk to your Siri or whoever your smart thing is on your phone, that's really just a front end to gain access to a much larger, almost infinite sort of resource base out there in the cloud. So what's coming around the corner is going to be quantum computing as a resource nodes in this cloud so that when you have your local sort of front-end interface AI that you communicate with and have some, some form of relationship with, et cetera, at whatever it needs to, it will fetch upon this much larger, almost infinitely scalable computational resource that's out there in the cloud. Well, all of those technologies, the physical things that make that sort of intersection possible comes from nanoscale manufacturing. Hmm. No, no, keep going. I mean, I'm, I, that made a whole lot of sense. And I have about 20 questions from everything, <laughs> every sentence you ever say. And I'm like, which one should I ask him first? Well, just no, it, whatever kinds of thoughts. But another yeah, one to look at this. It, um, it, we are being pressured into a, a realm where complexity keeps – if I put this on a graph, and I have one. I shouldn't have posted it up here. But plot this on a graph. As complexity goes up, time shrinks downward. The length of time it took that could have been measured, say, in decades – to develop core technologies has been shrinking down to years, now it's shrinking down to months. As the AI protocol becomes ever more robust, usually in very different but coalescing sort of <coughs> collaborative areas of development, that time will shrink even further, maybe days. We'll enter into an arena where AI-type systems will design things and create things. We don't even know exactly how it was created, but we know that it's working better than the ones oh, that were even created earlier. That's kind of like the 3D printing. I mean, it just puts something together real quick, and it's like, I, I, I'm, I mean, you might think that's a simple thing, but to me, I'm oh, my gosh, that's incredible. You know, here it is, boom, a home, well, uh, whatever. Well, I'll, give you another, I'll give you another example. There's something called evolutionary computing, which is sort of like a, a little side uh, niche off the major computing world. But it's interesting because, and I actually was, I was actually part of a, on the board of a company called Evolutionary Networks, which did exactly this. In fact, when I went to a, give a talk at Lockheed Martin, and this, again, was going back to like 2007, 2008, the entire talk was about biological metaphors and computing. And it turns out that they were very aggressively into this even then. And their, their vision was more about security, about self-healing networks and never second, have like a virtual immune system for the networks, that kind of thing. But where I was trying to go with this was there was something called the Evolutionary Hardware Conference, where you would go there. This was at Pasadena. Um, we saw all kinds of different devices that had been designed by evolutionary platforms. The one that got my attention was an antenna system. Antennas are really difficult to design. It's almost like black magic. It's a lot of math and material science sort of mixed together with RF signals and this kind of thing. The humans spent about a month designing this new multispectral antenna for a spacecraft. The evolutionary computing platform spent about well, four or five days. It spewed out its version of a design, which looked more like a bird nest than anything else, whereas the humans made this really beautiful orthogonal, almost like a Christmas tree type of uh, geometric thing. The bird nest worked better. Yes. Nobody could explain why. Hmm. And that was over a decade ago. 
Mm. So I can only I do, can agree with the things that have gone much further since then. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I I do know that part for sure. So like um I guess when I think about the thing, first of all, I've learned a lot. All, the learned about I would always think nanotechnology was just itty bitty, but you're talking about no, it's the complexity of all that it can do. Does that so synthetic biology is that yeah. where we can create a liver with that and put it in our body? That's exactly or we what's can... going on right as we speak. That's the whole point. That's like one very narrow niche of a much broader spectrum, but you're aiming in the right direction. In the case of synthetic organisms. Uh, what's, what's done is created a scaffold. It's a type of three-dimensional mesh that the cells can grow into. And then over time, yes, you essentially grow a new liver or whatever the organism you're trying to grow. This is still in development, but yes, it's very much going in that direction. Years and years and years ago, I remember a dentist or orthodontist. He was more than a dentist. He was uh, higher up in the uh, tooth world. But he had said one day, because he was working on it with people, this was years ago, and maybe it's already out, I don't know. But he said, one day you'll be able to take a pill and you can build bone wherever you need to build bone. And, you know, he was talking about teeth uh, in general there, but he said anywhere too, you'll take the the pill, and it'll know exactly where to go and start building bone. I'm not sure about that one, but we can break it apart if you wish. Uh, no pun intended, you don't break bone. Uh, but <laughs> where, I'm, where I'm going with this is... We can fracture have, it a little bit. Right, fracture <laughs> a little bit. If you have a quasi-viral component, like I was mentioning in the earlier section, that can target specific cell types and target specific organs, and then once those quasi-viral components get there, they can then deliver... A, pa- a payload of sorts. It's usually going to be a genetic payload of some kind, RNA or some some other proteomic resource that's relevant to doing whatever. And yes, theoretically, <coughs> excuse me, it could instigate the growth of whatever it is you're trying to create. So even though I haven't seen that done, the pieces of the puzzle are certainly within being plausible. Wild card line number one, let's talk to David out of New Mexico. David, you are on the air. Oh, oh boy, Charles, you've raised a bunch of questions, but but first of all, the important stuff. <laughs> well, good. To, yes. to the important stuff first, Connie. Did I catch you making a size matters joke earlier in the program? Uh, maybe I don't know what no. you're talking about. I uh, uh, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I and, thought it was and, funny, and Charles. <laughs> um, before we get started, I I also grew up in one of the type of towns that you describe. But in what part of the country was your small town? Uh, I was in Kent, Washington. Which at the time okay. was like a little tiny farming tower. We had orchards and cows and horses. Now it's just a suburb of Seattle. But back then it was kind of like a little farming town. Right, exactly. And um, interesting note of trivia, at least to me, the, uh, your alma mater, um, uh, Lawrence Livermore, um, was named after a cousin of my grandfather, Ernest Orlando Lawrence, which I'm sure. Oh, my goodness. Quite oh, yeah. Pardon? Wow. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And. Um, so I had a couple different questions, uh, and the most important one last, but you raised a couple of things that, that seem to be debatable, and one of them being the, the oh, first of all, eight-year-old in your antenna thing. An eight-year-old in 1970s with a roll of aluminum foil or tin foil, hmm. how does that fit into uh, the analysis of the antenna situation of uh, uh, human design versus uh, versus um uh, AI, and if I could stay on the line to, for your answer, please. Yeah, no, I'm not sure. I'm, I, I'm maybe if you repeat the question because I'm, I'm not sure I understand you. You're talking about a, in, in the in the 1970s, the old cliche uh, fun thing is uh, uh, with the digital television and or radio antennas. You know, AM/FM. 
UHF, oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, put some tinfoil on the antenna. Well, this is a yeah. much more challenging situation. I mean, antenna design, like I said, is one of the most complex, difficult areas of science there is. You're dealing with different forms of electromagnetic wave signals, and you're trying to capture them under some very specific condition set, usually with very precisely defined spectra, and under conditions that would make usual uh, receptions or, or transmissions more challenging than normal, especially in spacecraft. And so what, what was going on with Pasadena, they were developing different kinds of spacecraft that could transmit and transceive signals under you know really uh, strenuous conditions with extreme temperatures, exposure to solar, uh, you know, radiation, all the kinds of things that you normally have to deal with when you're in space, and be able to fold, come apart, then fold back out again, and then collapse back into a full uh, uh, geometry. This is not going to be with tinfoil. <laughs> I'm, sorry, I'm sorry. I wish I could explain it better, but it's not going to be with a piece of tinfoil. Did you have another question too, David? A bit of seriousness in that question because uh, the 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 uh, the old thing about uh, dad directing the the uh, kid to stand uh, a couple more feet to the left or to the right of the television set to <laughs> create an antenna of sorts and with, with or without uh, aluminum foil. No, and, um, let me let me give you the, my the question that I gave Donna the screener. Uh, let me give that to you now, and if you'll allow me in, uh, any other uh, things that I noticed uh, on your commentary, that's appreciated. But the end question is going to be: Charles, are we going to live forever? No. We'll probably live to an extended uh, lifetime, but it won't be evenly distributed. There's no way it can be. And that's probably one of the more questionable, debatable aspects of a lot of the stuff that I work on, which I didn't really talk about too much publicly. But yes, we're approaching a kind of a event horizon where we can genetically modify. I mean, look, aging is like a pathology. Are there genetic markers that could be affected to extend or reduce the severity the pathology as we get older? Probably so. Could we go well, to, like, say, 200 years as opposed to 100 years, something like that? Probably. Maybe more than. But could we have renewed organs? Could we have renewed skin and, and you know, everything else, that eyes and everything else that's part of our being right now? Probably. Will it be something that's off the shelf for the average person? Probably not. If we have 8 billion people now, what's going to happen when we have, say, 10 billion or 20 billion, you know, et cetera? And people are living much longer. Right now, I'm sorry to put it this way, but right now, our Social Security system is failing because yeah. we're living much longer than yeah. when the original system had been designed, you know, going back to the 1930s. It's not, it's not sustainable. So at some point, and I'm sorry to answer this, there's probably going to be some kind of involuntary evolutionary correction. <laughs> I, mean, I wish I could word this better. But there's no way that we could possibly say, let's all live forever to everybody that wants to. It would never work. Yeah, it would all have to change. It would all have to change. But here, so now you get into another question, which is, were we made to live forever? Were we made to come here? We had a ticket to ride on Earth, and we take that ride, and then we're gone on that ride because we got all these other rides at the amusement park to take, you know? So were we meant to live forever? I mean, because a lot of times... we, we We were meant to have the capacity to use our free will and our potential intellectual capacity to invent ever better tools to better the quality of life here. But we don't know that. World. That's your theory too, right? Well, yeah, but that's, that's your theory. theory. But, but just hang with me for a second. Uh, okay. the, test, the test is, can we actually use these tools 
in a effective and yet what I might call spiritually wise way. Up to this point, I think there's a small subset of the population that's very much in sync with maybe our ways of thinking. There's a lot of people out there that have no interest in this at all. To them, it's all about competitive, um, you know, sort of who can gain more more material, more power, et cetera, right. under what conditions using the technology of their choice. We're very, very far away from having kind of a ubiquitous mindset that sees a more tolerant, more spiritually wise, if you want to use that set of words, way of managing these tools. Could we, in fact, expunge ourselves by misusing the tools? Quite possible. Has this happened before in other worlds? I would say yes. In fact, God, I'm so sorry. On slide number seven, I show a chart that depicts this exact phenomenon. We're kind of right at the very edge of what I call the max risk of extinction point, this sort of singularity threshold. We probably have a couple of three decades to get through this transitionary stage. We'll sort of know at the end of that transitionary stage which direction this is going to go in. Are we going to regress and kind of go backwards? Or do we actually get to use these various tools to make a better version of ourselves and progress further? At which point we go out into space and we start to colonize other worlds and you know that sort of thing. But we can't really get there until we get past this point. And it's designed that way. We should have to prove our own efficacy and not just making fancy tools, but knowing how to use them wisely. Well, I can tell you health-wise and, well, physically, physically, uh, we've got to do a lot of improvements, and I think that's what you're talking about, to where people don't just sit in hospitals and just lay there. I, you know, I've had my parents pass, and it is horrible to watch, and so many people I know in the same situation just watching uh, each other fall apart. So thank you guys for continuing to work on that, because however long it is, may it be healthier and healthier and healthier and be like a Lelaine uh uh, an Elaine Lalane and a Jack Lalane. Stay with us. More to come here on Coast to Coast AM. You are listening to Coast to Coast AM. Connie Willis here. Find me at ConnieWillis.com. I look forward to meeting you and you joining our shows. We always have a good time. And we've got our creepy hotspots coming up soon where we're going to be going out to places and doing real research of Bigfoot, strange lights, all that really cool stuff. So right now, yeah, ConnieWillis.com is where you want to go. Okay, so now uh, we're talking with Charles Ostman. He's also, my, you know what, I mean, I can read all this stuff about you, but if there's anything else you want to uh, say about you and your background, please do now, Charles. Time flies, as you know. This yeah, is the last no, segment. Time compresses as complexity goes up. So um, maybe a <laughs> different way of looking at this. I spent a lot of time with NanoSig and also the Strategic Synergy Group and other groups like this in Silicon Valley. And by the way, uh, the Silicon Valley Bank crash, that's a big deal. I mean, that's a really big deal. I don't know how many people pay attention to this sort of thing. It seems esoteric, but it's not. That's a very scary momentary snapshot of how fragile the current economic scenario is. And I don't want to drift off into some sort of quasi-economic political statement or something, but it just shows that things are much more precarious than what a lot of folks may 
acknowledged. Oh man, I was hoping to move. I was hoping to move there uh, recently in that area, and I couldn't find anything. And a lot of people were like, "You're going to find a whole lot because everybody had to leave that area." But that's not true. That's not well, true. Yeah. At all. Well, if, if you got a, if you got a few million dollars, you can find a nice place. But uh, that you're exactly right. Oh my god. I know. I've been there many times. So this amazing. SCB, they were a sponsor of us. They, back when we were in Nanosig, they're one of our primary sponsors, along with three of the three of the, I can't talk anymore, three of the major IP law firms. Um, also, Oppenheimer Investments was part of us, and we had others that were involved. My job at that time was to perform what's called due diligence. I'd be looking at various nanotech-related projects, and I would go to the lab, and I would talk to the various you know investigators and, and scientists and so on, Get us get a gander on their history, not just tend to be what was in front of me in terms of the physical things in the lab, but also the history of the people involved, what their development path had been, and how they got together as a group in the first place. A lot of times, the sort of I don't know, social synergy counts as much as the actual technology itself. We're trying to look at these sort of things and make a value. And I would do a valuation, and I would tell the investment group that we were looking at what the chances of an ROI might be within a given length of time. But because of that, I got to see a lot of things that many people probably don't, will ever see in their lifetime, just by the nature of that kind of a occupation. Tell I, us, tell us, the tell fact us. That I also had a Q clearance at earlier times in my life, which is when I was working at Los Alamos and so on. So I, I had access to not just proprietary technology, but even in some cases to defense-related projects that I won't go into. But I mean, I got to see a lot of things. So in that kind of context, I have seen more than what a lot of people may actually do. you have security clearances? Oh, uh, back in the day, yes. Well, the, so you can actually tell us about what some of these things are. Well, I can't because it's still classified. <laughs> oh, so it is. Okay, so you do. So you did have some sort of clearances. That, or do, do you have to have clearances them, for it to be classified? Yeah, but when I was in Los Alamos, I had to. I mean, there's no way you can get into the lab. You had to have okay. Um, and But this goes back to, you know, decades ago. Can but you tell us something that, cool, though? Come on. Um, that you're allowed to? Something really cool. Come on, you, you're on I coast. Give, I can give you some general okay. snapshots. Well, okay, I'll tell you one that's kind of interesting. This is more recent. There's something okay. called RoboFly. RoboFly is a fly, you know, an insect. It's a, it's a virtual insect. Well, not virtual. It's a mechanical insect that's enabled with nanotechnology once again. Yeah. But here's the thing. Imagine now if you had something about the size of a dragonfly that looks and behaves like an insect. And it flies around. It can sniff, even maybe capture some data, you know, that sort of thing. But in order to make one that really works, you have to model how the fly's wings actually do their thing. It turns out it's much more complex than simply flapping wings up and down. It turns out that the wings rotate um, on their axis, kind of like, a, like, like, like adjusting a pitch on a propeller, that sort of thing. So that in order to do that, they had to take extremely high-speed video capture of different flies, and then slow it down, of course, so they can analyze the movement, then build a model, a much larger model. In this case, this was on UC Berkeley campus. They had this large tank full of mineral oil and had this mechanical fly wing, you know, sort of flapping around inside there, trying to analyze exactly at what point in the flying cycle, in the, in the sort of movement cycle of the wing, where the highest viscosity points were, so they could analyze what would take, how much energy it would take to fly a device like this. There's something called the Reynolds constant, which is part of the equation that goes into determining relative viscosity versus velocity and, and mass and that kind of thing. So anyway, 
I would go to this guy's lab. He's a friend of mine. He's no longer there. I went back to his lab one day. It was gone. Everything. The, the tank, all the equipment. It was clean to the bare walls. And so I asked one of the other folks there. I said, well, what happened to Dr. So-and-so? Well, he went south. I mean, he went to Southern California. They wouldn't say where. They wouldn't say to what institute or what campus. They said, well, they shipped him off to this other location in Southern California. That's quite typical of how these things work. Mm. When I worked on some of the laser projects I was involved with, we would design and build things to suit a certain spec, a design parameter. Once we finished the thing in question, some folks would show up. They would take the thing and cart it off to somewhere. We never knew what happened to it. That was too right. normal. It was very compartmentalized. Right. I, I got you. I got you. Let's go uh, west of the Rockies right now and get a couple phone calls here. Uh, Dan out of, uh, because I will live there one day, Hawaii. Is it hello or hello, Dan? Aloha. Aloha. Aloha, indeed. Sounds lovely. <laughs> so, Connie, I have to tell you, I've been on with George and uh, George Knapp and uh, Nori like four times and uh, Ian Punnett, but Connie... You are so awesome. I love your vibe. I love how positive and fun your show is every time. I love it. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I love the, what's, you you had a bird behind you there. What's that? Oh, well, that's 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 just the sounds of Hawaii. They're called, they're called cookie frogs. They're actually little frogs that are super annoying. That's cool. That's cool. That's right. That's right. Hey, I want to, I want to amplify your thought. I, I want to second that motion. Connie really is cool. I mean, she's beyond. Oh, thanks. She's so great, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you are just so Thank great, girl. And I have to tell you now, check this out. So, you know, I've been listening to you for years, and I thought, man, she's got such a awesome voice. So I went online and, and looked, you know, checked out your pictures, and you're even hotter than your voice. So <laughs> you rock. Oh, watch out. So watch out. Thank you so much. Thank you kindly. I appreciate that. Thank you. Keep talking. More, more, more. I'm speaking for gazillions of people, right? So, uh, Carl, what I want to know is what, like, how old were you and what sent you down the rabbit hole? I don't know about rabbit holes. I was always interested in physics. I was always interested in cosmology. I was always interested in alternative life forms. I mean, going back to when I was like a little kid, I, I just never... I was never like a normal kid. I didn't like play football. I didn't hang out with the usual guys and do guy stuff. It wasn't me at all. I mean, completely not me. I mean, I started off being kind of a chess fanatic. I read science fiction constantly. Um, I even tried writing a bit of science fiction back when I was like in grade school. Um, I don't know. I don't even have an answer for that. So there you go. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, don't, I usually have a better answer, but that's, that's about it. <laughs> So moving on, no, that was still a good question, and that was a very nice phone call. Thanks again, Dan. Wildcard line number two, Robert out of New York. How are you tonight? You're on the air. It's wonderful to speak to both of you. Uh, and, uh, and I hope that you could uh, bring the guest back again and explore more frontiers of his research. Uh, yes, I'm Robert James with uh, uh, asking if he knew a professor in Washington State who worked with neutrino research nanotechnology, um, Dr. Peter Coetzer, who was an associate and uh, colleague of mine. He taught there at Washington State, uh, probably the time that um, that uh, your guest was uh, there in Washington. And so 
one of me knew him and uh, his work with Neutrino Communications hmm. and Satellite. I don't, I don't know of that person, but go on. I mean, neutrinos are kind of interesting, actually, but, but that's not my area of expertise. But please explain further. Okay. Uh, there's another uh, professor you may have heard of, Claude Shannon, who is considered the father of information age. Uh, he kind of laid the groundwork for the digital world. And uh, there's the, um, the, the a book that was written there regarding uh, from, from MIT and so forth. Hmm. And, um, uh, and uh, you've heard of Professor Max Tegmark. Uh, the book is called Life Point. Life 3.0, Being Human in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. In that book and somewhere in other literature, talks about technology becoming more important, the, the uh, AI becoming, uh, having with neural research and so forth, like you may be doing, will, so robots will become more intelligent than us human beings. And according to Albert, Germany now, there's a McDonald's that has no human beings, but the robots run the entire McDonald operation. So in any case, uh, I was interested in your comments regarding um, whether or not uh, some people say there's an agenda to reduce the world population. Um, Bill Gates talks about reducing it significantly. Uh, and is the human species at some point going to become obsolete? Well, I wouldn't say obsolete, and this is a very sort of touchy issue, so I'll give you my personal opinion on the matter. It's just an opinion. Okay. And you got so about look, a minute or so. Yeah. So as an evolutionary dynamic, you keep, there's a very famous book, by the way. It came up. I, um, you may call it. It's called Collapse. Um, and it's, it's a well-known book. It, it, uh, it goes into a lot of detail about how different societies collapsed under their own weight. They got too successful. They overpopulated a certain area. They expended all the resources available. Easter Island is probably the most extreme example. But there's lots of examples like this throughout the world. However, at that time, these were localized, relatively confined to a certain uh, ge- you know, sort of geopolitical region. And the society in that question may have gone away, but other societies came in and sort of re- reestablished a population later, that kind of thing. However, this is the first time that we see the entire planet uh, sort of succumbing to this potential. So what are the options? I would submit that at some point, there's either going to be a voluntary or an involuntary correction of sorts. Now, look, I don't see Bill Gates as some sort of evil something. I know there's all kinds of weird QAnon theories about the vaccines that have nanites that will be turned on with a special signal coming from G5 antennas or something. That's Less than a minute. Yeah. Less than a minute. Yeah, that's just complete nonsense. It's stupid. But what is much more likely is that we're going to have to come up with a much better way of managing our resources, and managing the size of populations that we're willing to go to before we hit that point. Lots of great questions. Thank you so much for that. Um, just really, 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 really quickly. Well, you know what? I, I won't even ask you that question. Tell me what you, uh, where people can find you and what you've got going on next or, or now. <laughs> well, it's always something going on. So, um, I'm, I know, I'm, right? Yeah, I know. It never ends. So the, the thing is, I'm no longer really employed full-time, which is kind of cool. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm retired in, at all, but I get to choose much more. I have the, the ability to choose 
the projects I'm going to work on nice. as opposed to just making an income, which is, which is really what I want to do. Yeah. So I tend to lean towards projects which have some kind of potential social value or, or some kind of value for the planet at large. So one of these has to do with an energy project. And I won't go into too much, just has, but to say that we're using nanotechnology, in this case graphene, as a kind of a fuel uh, reformer system. And it's a way to capture carbon and convert it into graphene. This is something that's already being done. But then use the graphene in a sort of unusual way from which you can then make an energy resource. I'll just leave it. Oh, wow. Okay. And historian of the future X.com. That's correct. Yeah. And my email's on there as well. Okay. And what's cool too is, and I didn't get to get into it, but you, uh, you, uh, you know what, we're going to have to save it for another time, but I think it might have to do with some sort of maybe possible weird metal. Anyway, thank you so much, Charles. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm glad it worked out. Thanks we're already so much. done? Oh, no. Wait a minute. Yes. <laughs> I know it. I know no, it. It flies. No. It flies. <laughs> Charles, oh, thanks so much. Man. Have That's a great. Wonderful. Well, thank you. It was wonderful, and you're very awesome. No matter what. Thank you does. so much. Oh. <laughs> Elaine LaLanne earlier and Charles Ostman there. Thank you all for being here. Thank the guest as well. If you liked it, if you had a good time, if you enjoyed the guest, please write in. Say something positive. That's really nice. I love that. From the foothills of the Colorado Rockies, many things going out to our team. That's just absolutely incredible. Julie Talbot, Bill May, Lisa Lyon, Tommy Danheiser, Dan Galani, Stephanie Smith, Mike Cosio. Hey there, Mike. He's the quiet guy in the back. Lex Lonehood, Sean LeDesseur, Tim Banal, Gina Salvati, Donna Walker. Getting to talk to uh, Elaine LaLanne tonight and loving that. Ryan, Stacy, Chris Burroughs, Tim Nairns, Tom Nairns, Penny Girl, Nerner, Adam Thompson. Oh, my gosh. I said Chris Burroughs. Hey, Chris, you get it again. Ian Punnett, Lisa Gar, Richard Searitt. He'll be on my podcast soon. George Knapp, and also the Emperor of the Night, George Norrie, the entire Coast to Coast AM team, and more in there, too. Hey, thanks so much, you guys, for being here. I hope you'll join me on ConnieWillis.com, the podcast, Become a Blue Rocker, and Connie After Dark. I'd love that. And until we meet again, keep watching the night skies and continue with me to seek out the strange and uncover the unknown. For Coast to Coast AM, I'm Connie Willis. Good night.